Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Bichetti, and today I have the great pleasure of sitting down to speak with Professor Marcus Nevius, an assistant professor of history and Africana studies at the University of Rhode Island and a rising scholar in the field of African American history to discuss his new book, City of Refuge, Slavery and Petite Marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp, 1763 to 1856. City of Refuge was published on February 1st, 2020 by the University of Georgia Press and joins a number of excellent titles in the Race in the Atlantic World series. City of Refuge is a story of petite marinage, an informal slave's economy, and the construction of internal improvements in the Great Dismal Swamp of Virginia and North Carolina. The vast wetland was tough terrain that most white Virginians and North Carolinians considered uninhabitable. Perceived desolation notwithstanding, black slaves fled into the swamp's remote sectors and engaged in petite marinage, a type of escape and fugitivity prevalent throughout the Atlantic world. An alternative to the dangers of flight by way of the Underground Railroad, maroon communities often neighbored slave labor camps, the latter located on the swamp's periphery and operated by the Dismal Swamp Land Company and other companies that employed slave labor to facilitate the extraction of the Dismal's natural resources. Often with the tacit acceptance of white company agents, company slaves engaged in various exchanges of goods and provisions with maroon networks that padded company agent uh, company accounts even as they helped to sustain maroon colonies and communities. In his examination of life commerce and social activity in the Great Dismal Swamp, Marcus P. Nevius engages the historiographies of slave resistance and abolitionism in the early American Republic. City of Refuge uses a wide variety of primary sources, including runaway advertisements, planters and merchants' records, inventories, letter books, and correspondences, abolitionist pamphlets and broadsides, county free black registries, and the records and inventories of private companies to examine how American maroons, enslaved canal laborers, white company agents, and commission merchants shaped and were shaped by race, and slavery in an important region in the history of the Atlantic world. Welcome to the show, Professor Nevius, and thank you so much for finding the time to sit down to discuss City of Refuge with me. Thank you for having me. Uh, Let me begin first by congratulating you on the publication of your first book. It's a very important milestone. Yes, um, it's it's humbling to see it in print on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's uh, really a culmination of 10 years of thinking about the Great Dismal Swamp and the the history of slave resistance in Virginia, North Carolina, in any number of ways, from uh, a master level student to an early career scholar who now has the pleasure, I I think, of getting, uh, having these opportunities of talking about it. I, you know, I always like to start my interviews by asking my guests, uh, on the show to just take a moment to reflect on the research and writing journey that they themselves traveled in the process of publishing their monographs. 
uh, what I would call the history behind the history, if you will. But before we dive directly into the many nuances of your book, I thought it best to begin by discussing how you yourself became interested in these research topics and how you came to write City of Refuge. Sure. Um, the earliest seed corn of City of Refuge began as uh, my series of interests in the history of Blacks in the South. Uh, I'm from New Jersey originally, and I found myself at North Carolina Central University uh, early on in the first uh, decade of this century. Interacting with a number of excellent scholars at North Carolina Central University in Durham, which is an historically black university, uh, engaging in the ways in which they uh, taught and wrote about the history of black people in this nation. Uh, but I had questions. Slavery, it seemed, was, and this is very true, as any number of books will, uh, uh, has explained, and as the consensus in the field is today, was quite an oppressive uh, institution that significantly positioned to a disadvantaged people of African heritage in this country. Uh, but there were also ways in which Black people in this country resisted slavery. And I began to become very interested right about my junior or senior year of undergrad in the many different forms of resistance. It, it sort of spoke to who I am as a person growing up in an urban area. I think you and I uh, have talked about this before. I'm actually from New Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, and my family is deeply rooted in New Brunswick, New Jersey. and they, in many different ways, embody uh, the different forms of cultural resistance that came out of the mid-20th century modern civil rights movement. And so in, in pondering what slave resistance really meant, I, of course, turned to the great 20th century tomes, the David Bryan Davises of the world, for example, and thinking about slavery and abolition and uh, Gerald Horn on the other side, perhaps, of that coin, thinking about it from people of African descent's perspectives uh, in an attempt to gain a better understanding as I matured as a student of what Black resistance was historically and what that actually meant for me as a person and a, a budding scholar, one might say. In a conversation with uh, Dr. Freddie Parker, uh, who eventually became my master thesis director, he pointed me in the direction of the Great Dismal Swamp. And he was responding in part to questions I had about the vastness of the geography of Central North Carolina to this day. Now, your listeners may know that uh, Central North Carolina in the mid-19th century was ground zero for tobacco. Uh, and because of the investments in slave-produced tobacco that uh, local slaveholders held, it still retains today a significant sort of background presence in the history of Durham, uh, particularly we think of uh, local historical sites such as Bennett Place. But in traveling through and visiting Bennett Place and going back and forth in the region, much of the landscape, even today, remains as it was, uh, save the pine trees, which are much older and much taller now. And that raised many questions for me. Uh, as an enslaved person, and this was probably my naivete, uh, why would I stay? I would ask myself. 
on a plantation, enslaved, if there's all this land in which I could potentially make use of in height. Now, Dr. Freddie Parker was quite the scholar of slave flight in antebellum North Carolina. He published a smaller volume with Garland Press in the mid-1990s, and he followed that with uh, the 800 pages or so of runaway advertisements that had undergirded his book in a second volume. The first volume was called Running for Freedom, the second, Stealing a Little Freedom. And so for my master thesis project, I went and took a deep dive into Stealing a Little Freedom, the volume of runaway advertisements. And it became clear to me pretty quickly in just a cursory glance and then a secondary glance, uh, trying to understand what slave runaway advertisements were and how they functioned was that many who advertised for runaways in North Carolina, particularly, uh, mentioned that enslaved people lurked about the neighborhood. And this was a refrain I saw even more so than warnings, for example, that enslaved people might be trying to leave the region, however they might be trying to leave the region. Uh, Warnings out of Edenton, for example, that an enslaved person might try to uh, gain passage by stowing away on on a vessel. Uh, headed to the North or to the Caribbean. And eventually this led to my master thesis, which I titled Lurking About the Neighborhood. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, no, the the, the master thesis was maroon and gray. My dissertation later was Lurking About the Neighborhood. And it was really me trying to deal with uh, the complexities of slave resistance, as you will, the complexities of slave flight, and trying to answer as a rather immature student, I would think, the question of why would someone remain on a plantation if they could simply hide in the woods. But that sort of project doesn't really undergird, at least as Dr. Parker and then others advised me, a a long-term academic project, a long-term piece of scholarship. And I had to, in order to answer that question or that charge, ground myself. And so Dr. Parker pointed me in the direction of the Great Dismal Swamp. And though in my thesis, I didn't necessarily uh, focus tightly on the Dismal Swamp. I was looking at eastern North Carolina counties in the thesis. I had an eye uh, for a longer form dissertation toward the Dismal because I was aware that the land companies, which invested significant capital and efforts in transforming the swamp's landscape, could potentially be a great catch of primary records that I might plumb. So that essentially became the dissertation project, uh, which uh, ultimately yielded many frustrations, perhaps more than successes, uh, but ultimately uh, lurking about the neighborhood, my dissertation. Uh, And then this book, City of Refuge, is, uh, I suppose, the final polished form of a longer trajectory of work from the thesis through the dissertation into the book. The introduction of your book reflects not only your talents as a writer, but also your extensive knowledge of multiple intersecting historiographies in African-American history, among them slavery and slave resistance, slave flight and rebellion, and the history of slavery and capitalism. In the opening pages of your book, you provide a breathtakingly rich illustration of the Great Dismal Swamp and the surrounding wetlands in an effort to familiarize your readers with a space that to them may not be so familiar. 
Admittedly, I grew up in the South, and I did not know nearly as much about the Great Dismal region until reading your wonderful book. So I was hoping that you could sketch the Great Dismal Swamp and the surrounding landscape for our listeners, and moreover, the ways in which space itself plays a foundational role in your new book. Yes. Um, So the Great Dismal Swamp is a natural wetland which today is preserved by the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, which covers roughly 175 or so square miles. Uh, But before the Civil War, the Great Dismal Swamp uh, covered as many as 2,000 square miles of land in the Virginia South Side. Uh, This was a vastly different territory than the more traditionally known context for slavery in Virginia, which is typically the uh, coastal tidewater region of the lower Delmarva Peninsula, or the three necks, as they call them in Virginia, the three peninsulas between the James York and Rappahannock rivers, uh, where dating to the 17th century, the many plantations, uh, tobacco plantations particularly, uh, of the Virginia first families generation and beyond were located. Uh, as for the swampscape itself, it's mainly comprised of new growth pine uh, trees and not quite as many cypress trees as once upon a time there were. Uh, this is the result of post-bellum uh, logging enterprises, which targeted the swamps uh, trees well into the 20th century. But prior to those post-bellum uh, logging enterprises, the swamp was very much characterized by tall, uh, old-growth, long pine uh, trees, southern pines, and an intermittent mixture of cypress trees as well. And of course, the very dense, rich green uh, undergrowth that these trees promoted. The landscape itself um, is mainly comprised of peat-based soils, which are in many cases uh, as deep as the human waste or of perhaps four feet or more uh, in some places. And in other places, higher elevations of uh, dry land, which rise to about 10 feet or so above the uh, surrounding water table. It's a tidal basin, essentially, that extends inland from the Atlantic coast about uh, 30 or so miles to a western escarpment of land, uh, which precedes the uh, Piedmont Plateau further inland from the coast. Oh, and I should mention that today visitors can take advantage of of access to the swamp from one of two entry points, one being uh, the North Carolina State Park Visitor Center, which I believe is off of U.S. Highway 17 uh, in northeastern North Carolina, and in uh, Southside Virginia on the western side of the swamp, a much smaller Virginia Visitor Center, uh, which is located just beyond the pale of the trees and offers uh, access to the site of Dismal Town and also to Lake Drummond. Lake Drummond, for what it's worth, I think I mentioned this uh, to you in a separate conversation, uh, is a natural body of water, circular, which is in the center uh, of the swamps, no more than six feet deep in most places, and it's about three miles in radius around. 
it was very much the center of activity in the swamp in the 17th and 18th, 19th centuries. That was one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was that it was so spatial and geographic in its detail, specifically when you described the various slave labor camps and the semi-permanent maroon installments that dotted the Great Dismal Swamp's landscape throughout the 18th and the early 19th centuries. And as I was reading, you know, to jump ahead a few chapters before we return to the earlier ones, I, as I was reading chapter three of your book reminded me of several new studies by scholars, including Jim Downs, Amy Mural Taylor, and Stephanie McCurry, and actually more recently, the Volia Glimp, about uh, Union contraband camps. And collectively, how these scholars' works reframed the Union Army's contraband camps as contested terrains of freedom for African-American women, men, and children seeking asylum from slavery and the ravages of war surrounding them throughout the years of the American Civil War. And as we've learned from the work of the late scholar Stephanie Camp in Closer to Freedom and Anthony Kay in Joining Places, these contests over space rested at the heart of the institution of slavery and forms of slave resistance mobilized by the enslaved in the antebellum South. So, I mean, and, and so, I, you know, I have so many questions about this, but seen in this late, I think that your work adds a very important nuance to a growing scholarly interest in the overlapping histories of slavery and space. And so I was hoping that you could take a moment to paint a picture for our listeners of what these slave labor camps look like that you described throughout your book, you know, in terms of their spatial organization, and also where the day-to-day operations of everyday life would have taken place in these spaces, and the ways in which these spaces were also, as you describe later in the book, very important points of contact with absconded maroons in the Great Dismal Swamp. Sure. Um, so first of all, thank you very much for um, framing City of Refuge within a growing literature that escaped my uh, uh, treatment in this particular book. Uh, for reasons, as you mentioned earlier, I was slightly interested in uh, different historiographical framings that ultimately le- led to answering questions about uh, abolitionism. That said, these camps would have been typically small and typically located on the hummocks, which I mentioned earlier, the uh, parts of the swamp which were slightly elevated uh, above the water table. And this would have been both sets of camps. This would have been the sets or sites of slave labor camps in particular, and also the maroon camps, which would have been set in more remote parts of the swamp, mainly below the, the boundary with North Carolina. Um, and they would have looked quite different. The slave labor camps uh, were often constructed by enslaved people themselves and often overseen by uh, company agents who uh, spent, uh, as my research shows, uh, sporadic amounts of time at the camps at best. Uh, They would have been located at the camps for several days, perhaps several weeks at a time, but they were not a constant presence there. Uh, These In these camps, as Moses Grandy describes quite nicely in his uh, narrative of his his, uh, experience as a slave, uh, would have essentially been covered with sawdust, uh, would have also included small uh, huts constructed uh, for shelter because enslaved Slaves at these camps would have spent weeks and months at a time there. 
for bedding, enslaved people would have laid out sawdust, essentially, to insulate their bodies from the peat soils and grounds. And they would have constructed using roughly hewn uh, poles taken from trees in the swamp uh, supports and then covered these huts on three sides and the roof with an assortment of readily available materials from the swamp, typically made of the timber that they milled at uh, either uh, a particular slave camp or at a mill site, which would have been uh, as many as several miles to the north and east, uh, depending upon where you were in the swamp. The fourth side of the hut would have been open, uh, even at night, such that um, fires could be stoked to provide warmth in the winter uh, and also to provide uh, a smoke screen to beat back the nocturnal insects, mosquitoes and yellow flies among them. Um, well, yellow flies are, are not nocturnal, but uh, mosquitoes particularly and other sorts of chiggers and such, which would have uh, constantly assaulted uh, the enslaved people at these particular camps, especially from the months of April well into October. Uh, the maroon camps were slightly different and are a matter of significant scholarly debate uh, today, in part because no extant traditional primary archival evidence exists describing a maroon camp in the Great Dismal Swamp. That qualification said, uh, recently, the historical archaeologist Dan Sayers has uh, conducted over the course of about 15 years, significant archaeological research in the swamp, uh, dating to his days as a dissertator uh, at the College of William and Mary, and also as the leader of five archaeological field schools, which enrolled undergraduates and graduates out of American University and took them into the swamp uh, between 2009 and 2013, I believe. What Dan Sayers and several of his colleagues have found is actually stunning. In some of the maroon sites that they've identified, they have uh, discovered evidence of post and ground structures, of fire pits, of pits that might have been used to dispose of organic material, uh, along with other uh, artifacts, which he describes quite nicely in his book, uh, A Desolate Place for a Defiant People, which uh, Florida published, uh, I believe, in 2015. Seeing as I am not an historical archaeologist, uh, I do summarize uh, Dan's findings, and I also explain from the perspective of someone who was invited to join uh, his field school in 2013 and who spent a month entering the swamp with that field school, uh, the usefulness of the, the evidence, the material evidence, for historians who are attempting to also uh, connect to these broader historiographies that you mentioned. That also being said, I think it's important to note, too, that from the perspective of enslavers, either those who were the uh, officials of the land companies that I research in this book, or those who were more commonly uh, associated with the slave society around the swamp, the swamp itself, visually and materially, was a very, very dismal, foreboding, 
an almost threatening place, uh, described often as the haunt of not only slaves who labored in the swamp, but rebel slaves who hid within the swamp, and all manner of animals and insects uh, as large as black bears, uh, but also in the 19th and 18th centuries, cougars, uh, deer, uh, and all sorts of waterfowl that you might find in an American southeastern swamp. That's really remarkable that you were able to participate in these archaeological excavations. And I I can only imagine the ways in which those on-site experiences truly informed not only your research on the subject, but also your ability to conceive of what everyday life would have been like, not only for the enslaved laborers um, who worked, and as you discussed throughout the book, for the Dismal Swamp Company and the Dismal Swamp Canal Companies, as well as their offshoots, but also for the absconded in, uh, men and women who sought refuge in the Great Dismal uh, during this period before the Civil War. Um, I can only imagine the experiences and the stories that you have from that on-site expedition. For our listeners who are not as versed in the history of slavery and slave resistance in the Atlantic world, I was hoping that you could please define marinage and the ways in which City of Refuge makes very specific arguments for the type of marinage practiced in the Great Dismal Swamp throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries that you study in your new book. Yes. So um, the history of marinage has been very, very much contested over the last century or so, just about. Um, Early scholars date to Herbert Aptecker and... Uh, Kenneth Porter, uh, who looked at instances of slave flight that did not necessarily uh, uh, fit an easy definition. Typically, uh, historians in particular in the 20th century followed very closely the language of uh, those who wrote about enslaved people who fled in their midst. And particularly, they were studying, for example, slave runaway advertisements, which described uh, enslaved people as outliers, uh, as banditti and the like, as uh, Sylvian Diouf has recently explained in uh, Slavery's Exiles. These historians, particularly looking at North American contexts, were writing at roughly the same time that social scientists, particularly uh, anthropologists, were uh, traveling throughout the Caribbean and the global South, seeking context with and working very closely with Maroon-descended communities in places like Jamaica and Suriname. Uh, Richard Price was perhaps the most prominent um, of these uh, anthropologists. Uh, He would refer to himself in uh, his uh, volume, Maroon Studies, as uh, a historical, uh, an ethno-historian, if I remember correctly. But at any rate... uh, sought to document very carefully and did excellent work in so doing uh, the history of Maroons as told by descendants in places like the Leeward and Windward Mountains of Jamaica, or in Price's case, Suriname. This generated a vast uh, uh, volume of scholarship uh, emanating mainly out of Johns Hopkins University, beginning in the late 1970s and extending into the 1990s, at which point 
uh, maroon studies became uh, much more widely known in the academy and students of Price, including Ken Bilby, uh, deepened the reservoir of knowledge that we have of marinage in the Caribbean. Uh, I would also note that, although not a student of Price, uh, the historian Alvin O. Thompson, uh, his recent synthesis of marinage in the Caribbean, uh, Flight to Freedom, uh, synthesizes this work very well. On the other hand, with regard to North American contexts, histories of marinage were much more slow coming. Uh, 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 there were some, uh, particularly studying St. Malo's maroons outside of New Orleans, or particularly uh, contextualizing the Seminole Wars as being deeply, deeply rooted in the actions of fugitive slaves who fled throughout Florida uh, as uh, Andrew Jackson and others in the United States beat a drum of pursuing them uh, in the early 19th century. But this left the Great Dismal Swamp in a particularly precarious space with regard to the question of marinage. I should also note that dating to Gabriel Debian's excuse me, uh, article in 1966, scholars, social scientists, and humanist historians uh, generally defined marinage as uh, taking shape in two contexts. Petite marinage, which generally described instances of small groups or individuals who fled slavery for brief amounts of time or indeterminate amounts of time, but did not uh, coalesce into grand communities versus clan marinage, which was more widely seen, at least by these scholars, as having taken shape in Jamaica, Suriname, and, and Cuba, and, and other places. But most recently, uh, scholars are developing a new consensus that is doing away uh, with the grand uh, petite binary and is taking a fresh look at flight to also infuse into the scholarship and reading particularly of primary sources of slave flight, these new perspectives on the way in which um, runaways uh, activities in North America might be seen. It's in this context that we've come to learn about the Dismal Swamp as a site of marinage, as, uh, as, as I describe it, and as others are describing it too. As I uh, wrote in City of Refuge, and as appears on page 11, uh, I actually want to quote this because I think it, it might answer your question directly. Marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp was a complex human history of slave agency and enslaved laborer guile in which uh, both groups, the enslaved laborers and uh, maroons who decided to repudiate more directly Virginia slave society, uh, negotiating the oppressive terms of slavery in an extreme environment. In other words, they used the refuge that they were able to create in the dismal to generate the space necessary to not be directly oppressed, or if oppressed at all, depending upon whose view you take, uh, while still finding themselves surrounded by Virginia's ever-expanding slave society. That's the other part of the story that I tell in City of Refuge. It's interesting to me the ways in which you 
synthesize a lot of these scholars that you've cited previously, but also you make very specific claims and articulations about the ways in which, and in some ways it kind of reverts back to my previous question about space and the role it plays in City of Refuge, are the ways in which the landscapes of the lower Chesapeake region that is under study in, in your book hindered slave flight out like along the Underground Railroad. So the inability of enslaved persons seeking uh, reprieve from the harsh realities of everyday slavery and, and the you know the the exploitation that accompanied that that they often weren't able to make these connections to larger networks of the Underground Railroad to seek freedom in the North, and so thus they had to isolate themselves within these more remote areas, such as the Great Dismal Swamp. Yes. So we all know, or should know, the heroic stories of Harriet Tubman, for example, who on the other end of the Chesapeake, actually, uh, and to the east of the northeast of the Dismal, uh, was well known, uh, of course, after the fact, for spiriting enslaved people out of the eastern shore or, or eastern Chesapeake shore region of Maryland to freedom by way of Philadelphia and beyond. Uh, that landscape in some ways is very similar to uh, the south side of Virginia with the main exception that there was not a significantly huge and foreboding swamp proximate to uh, Dorchester County where uh, Harriet Tubman was most active in Maryland. Add to that, Virginia's particular landscape uh, and its particular location uh, or, or the Dismal Swamp's particular proximity to Norfolk, which was Virginia's, one of Virginia's major riverine ports in the Atlantic world. Enslaved people did have a choice in the region. They could attempt to escape into the Atlantic world by way of stowing away on vessels uh, out of Portsmouth, out of Norfolk, and uh, to places like Philadelphia and beyond. But as the internal or domestic slave trade began to expand in the years after 1790, and particularly in the years after the 1820s, escape out of these particular regions became significantly more perilous, uh, especially as Norfolk became one of the major centers of exporting uh, enslaved people out of Virginia to much, much, uh, 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 I should frame this differently, to uh, unknown, is what I'm trying to say, uh, context of slavery in a developing cotton kingdom in the Southwest. We do know the famous story of, for example, um, Henry Box Brown, who escapes the region, if I'm uh, not mixing up my slave narratives, uh, at any rate. Um, but there's also the choice which incidentally might have been more appealing to remain on the lamb close to home with connections to local plantations through the enslaved labor camps. And put another way, and perhaps put more directly, to run into slavery in the Great Dismal Swamp and to resist slavery in camps of marinage meant proximity to home in some ways via the slave labor camps. Um, and so suffice it to say that some did actually escape by way of the Underground Railroad's networks uh, uh, 
along the coastline or otherwise. But it's my view in some ways that far more chose to run into the swamp and to do so to remain close to home while not necessarily having to be forced out of Virginia. I'm not sure that that answers your question, but that's sort of where I think you were going. I do. You know, one of the the lingering things that I, and and having read your book and understanding these differences between Petit and Grand Marinage, um, again, it brings me back to the work of Stephanie Camp and her very important intervention in the field of African-American history that you know, she's she's taking into consideration a number of different interrelated themes, but that enslaved women were less likely to run away, but they were in fact more likely to be truant for prolonged periods of time. And so they would escape into uh, landscapes that bordered the plantations or the spaces in which they were held in bondage. And they would stay for a, a you know, a specified period of time, usually not very long, but then they would ultimately return due to these familial connections, due to the difficulties of seeking flight with a child in arms. Um, A number of different reasons why enslaved women were not able to successfully flee slavery at the same rates that enslaved men were. And so that was one of the things that I, I constantly came back to was how was petite marinage similar yet um, you, distinctive from truancy? Yes, that's a, that's a question I grappled with, uh, mainly as a dissertator. And my advisor, uh, Leslie Alexander at Ohio State, she was at Ohio State at the time, uh, pointed out uh, Stephanie Camp's work. And so, so I, I thought about her framing of geographies of resistance uh, as a way that I might at least think about the Great Dismal Swamp. And, and some of my colleagues who actually do work on the Dismal Swamp too would go further than I think I have in City of Refuge and say uh, uh, more directly that the Great Dismal Swamp was very much so a geography of resistance. But as I worked through my dissertation, and especially as I worked through the process of uh, converting the dissertation into this book, I was left with a really nagging question that not only was the dismal a site of resistance, which it very much was, but that resistance took the form of significant amounts of negotiation between enslaved people at slave labor camps and the Maroons with whom they were likely allied, and uh, the agents that uh, land companies and canal companies dispatched into the swamp in order to oversee a slave labor camp's operation. I couldn't get away from that in visiting the archive of these companies that the resistance seemed to me to be as much connected to the slave society itself as it was a matter of truancy. And so truancy does show up in these records. Uh, I think I, I, I summarize this pretty well in City of Refuge that one of the primary complaints of, of uh, slave labor camp agents was that they increasingly, over time in the 19th century, found it difficult to compel enslaved people to arrive, quote-unquote, on time to labor at a camp without certain inducements. These inducements might include spirits, or they might include uh, clothing of some sort, such that the enslaved people at these camps might, A, be able to at least engage in the work they are being oppressed into doing, 
or B, so that they might exchange uh, these goods to maroon camps, which in turn might have produced, uh, and one historical archaeologist in particular, Ted Maris Wolf, has done really good work on this, uh, might produce uh, bumps in the amount of timber that a slave labor camp is producing because maroons are actually cutting timber in other parts of the swamp and passing it on to a slave labor camp. And so with regard to the question of truancy, I think the Great Dismal Swamp shows us yet one more way uh, that slavery, particularly in the Great Dismal Swamp, shows us one more way that truancy in and of itself was incredibly complex. Uh, In other words, I think City of Refuge adds to the conversation that uh, Dr. Camp uh, started before she passed away, in that looking at these geographies of resistance shows us any number of ways that enslaved women, for example, evaded uh, the violence that was entered against their bodies for short amounts of time or for longer amounts of time, indetermined amounts of times. And by contrast, I think in some ways, the Dismal Swamp shows us how a geography of resistance actually took shape within a context of slavery as well, almost side by side. The swamp itself, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, extended roughly 30 miles southward of Norfolk into North Carolina. And the further away you got from the lower end of Hampton Roads, or what are today Portsmouth, and what were then Portsmouth, uh, Norfolk, and South Mills, the further south you went, the more remote the swamp became, particularly in its southwestern quadrant. But that sector of the swamp was also claimed by, and traveled in some cases by, prospecting uh, uh, Virginians and North Carolinians who sought to form their own companies and who sought to use slave labor in their own ways in these particular swamps. Um, I capture this, I hope, pretty well in the story of Edmund Booth, uh, whose story I traced from the late 1840s into the mid-1850s by tracing each time he was entered into a county slave laborer register that was entered each year uh, in different months in Gates County, North Carolina. Uh, I can talk a bit about more about that uh, example as we get to it, I suppose, in, in this conversation. But the point that I'm making here is that Edmund Booth entered into the swamp as a slave laborer uh, each laboring season and exited the swamp, we can assume from this register, uh, after the season was over. And he returned on an annual basis compelled to do so by his enslaver, to be sure. But his passage in and out of the swamp from Nansen County into the swamp and its uh, southern sector and back shows us in some ways how the swamp was at once a refuge that was nearly impenetrable, but also was penetrable, if that makes sense. And that's sort of the, the, the conundrum that I seek to solve in this book by pointing to the ways in which abolitionists begin to frame the swamp in the antebellum period. But it's also one of those open questions that, at least from my perspective and from my efforts to engage, to some degree, the historian's consensus for rules of evidence, there are some parts of the story that I think I leave a bit open. I I certainly would like to 
uh, return to Edmund Booth's story. I, I kind of wanted to end the conversation today, actually, about Edmund Booth and a question about the story that you you tell. And I would really love to go into greater detail about that that specific uh, vignette that you provide in Chapter Six of the book about Booth's experiences. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think it would be good to leave off on that question because that's one of the things that I. Th- the tone of the text that you write is very open and it's, and in a way that is, you know, it demonstrates uh, extensive archival research, but on the other hand, the problematic nature of these sources, which I also would like to come back to in a few minutes, unfortunately forces us to recognize that leaving these stories open is all that we can do, but by at least shedding light on the, tangible aspects that we can locate in the historical archive and historicize, it's important to, as I mentioned, bring these stories to light, but also come to terms with the fact that the, you know, ultimate fates of these individuals, we may never know. Um, And so before I jumped ahead too far, um, I thought it may be productive for you to sketch the the early history of the extractive economy in the Great Dismal Swamp. And you do a really excellent job using these company records to not only situate the evolution of the Great Dismal Swamp's extractive economies and the use of enslaved labor, but also how these events occurred in tandem to broader national events that shaped not only the course of Virginia and North Carolina history, but also the history of slavery and the history of slaveholding in revolutionary and early Republic America. And so, I, yeah, I'm just hoping you could walk our listeners through the, the early history of land clearing and drainage schemes in the early 18th century dismal, and you know, subsequently the creation of the Dismal Swamp Company and its competing enterprises later in the 18th century. Sure, sure. So uh, the earliest evidence of ideas of schemes to drain the swamp uh, dates to the late 1720s. It dates to the survey party that uh, William Byrd II led uh, through the Dismal in their attempt to chart uh, the boundary between Virginia and North Carolina. And indeed, in his account of that experience, Bird suggests that the swamp would be an excellent site uh, for plantation agriculture if it were drained and properly uh, established with the use of slave labor. Bird is suggesting this in a context of a significant uptick in the transatlantic slave trade as recent scholarship of the transatlantic slave trade and dating to the two versions of the transatlantic slave trade database have shown that as the monopoly uh, in slave trading is broken in the British Atlantic world context, and as uh, independent slave traders and companies form uh, and gain inroads in West and West Central Africa, uh, the supply, if you will, of enslaved people expands exponentially. Um, And it does so at a moment where uh, third and fourth generation prospecting young men in Virginia particularly are looking for new uh, places in which they might establish themselves as uh, slaveholders. 
This is due in part to significant change over time in the tidewater region, which I mentioned earlier, as the soils of much of the tidewater were exhausted by tobacco. And as Virginia's overall economy begins to expand uh, away from a tobacco monoculture, slave-driven society of the 17th century. But it takes another 40 years or so for uh, earnest efforts to form form, uh, that target the Dismal Swamp. And in this context of targeting the Dismal for slave labor enterprises, uh, we might call them, uh, there's a very interesting cast of characters that include George Washington himself uh, as one of the surveyors in the early 1760s of the swamp seeking sites that look primed to be transformed into uh, plantations. In Washington's estimation, uh, the green sea sector of the swamp promised very, very rich soils. Uh, We all know that Washington, uh, over the course of his life, becomes infatuated with soil science, particularly at Mount Vernon, but also across Virginia. Uh, His proposal is taken up by uh, a number of prominent Virginians uh, and becomes essentially the Dismal Swamp Company, which is formed in 1763. And it's a multi-layered enterprise that involves a plan of each of the original company members to pledge a number of enslaved people that they would uh, send into the swamp to begin this work of this labor, I should say, of transforming the swamp into a plantation. Washington and others believe that rice would grow very well in uh, the swamp and with good reason. although further north of the traditional zone in North America where rice uh, uh, thrives from, of course, the low country well into the Gulf Coast, Washington saw in the soils of the swamp and in its water table uh, a prime location. Their efforts lead to the establishment of Dismal Town in the mid-1760s, which ultimately transfers to the oversight of Washington's brother, John Augustine Washington, uh, by the mid to late 1760s. And it's in the correspondences of Washington and other company officials and agents such as John Augustine Washington and others I mentioned in the book that the earliest picture of Dismal Plantation and of a slave labor enterprise in the Dismal comes into focus. That story was particularly well told by Charles Royster in uh, his book, uh, the famous uh, Dismal Swamp book, which he saw as a very good commentary on the time of Washington, uh, written, of course, for an audience of folks who a generation ago were quite interested in all the exploits of the quote-unquote founding fathers. But I decided to take a sort of grassroots look at these same documents and to attempt to get more closely to the ground with the way in which I told the story, which I I believe I accomplished uh, in City of Refuge. And so in looking, uh, I should note, and I should have noted earlier, I think, that Maroons did not, of course, in all but a few instances, write anything (laughs) that would have betrayed their existence or their location in the swamp. So part of the methodology which undergirds this book is really reading archival silences as uh, 
Marisa Fuentes and others have recently put forth in order to translate a bit more of the experience of the swamp. And I do so from the perspective of company agents who are corresponding with company officials. Dismal Town was a halting enterprise from the start, as can be told in agent letters and correspondences and company officials' correspondences, because the enslaved people themselves, first and foremost, nearly refused at every turn to undertake the work, the labors of creating a rice plantation. Time and again, I read in these, in these sources complaints that enslaved people refused to maintain the ditches, for example, that they were supposed to establish, and that as a result, the rice crops, the early rice crops, failed to meet expectations. And the corn crop, which was uh, a way in which the company sought to buffer its interests against a failure, a full-on failure of the rice crop, the corn crop mysteriously only produced enough for the subsistence of those who were enslaved at Dismal Plantation. And it's also in these records that we begin to develop a sense of the numbers of enslaved people uh, at Dismal Plantation, which I determined to be somewhere between 50 and 40 over time, uh, descending a number from the mid-1760s into the 1770s. And to the, the other point of your question, that these records not only tell us about slave resistance, but also a bit more about uh, American history in this period. Uh, the American Revolution intervenes in very direct ways in the effort to establish Dismal Town. John Augustine Washington, for example, is called out of the swamp to join uh, the Virginia uh, militia in 1775. He becomes actually an officer in the Virginia militia. George Washington, of course, it goes without saying, uh, becomes centrally involved in the American revolutionary effort. And indeed, by the 1780s, Washington begins shedding uh, some of his, let's say, less profitable ventures, including Dismal Town, uh, which uh, and the Dismal Swamp Company which he leaves in the mid-1780s after the American Revolution ends. It's also coincidental that he's retiring from public service in the same time period, again, of course, only to be called back into public service in the late 1780s uh, as the new United States comes into existence under the United States Constitution. And so in City of Refuge, I seek not only to privilege, to center uh, what we might learn about slave resistance, about black resistance, uh, by reading the archival silences in order to develop a better sense of who among enslaved people might have been in the swamp. But I also try to tie that into uh, the historical context of the early United States, in, in part because the Dismal Swamp Company and I might be thinking about this in, in a form of a second project, I'm not entirely sure, but the Dismal Swamp Company is, is one, of, one of the key uh, companies that ultimately reflects a 19th century move toward internal improvements, um, particularly as the company itself uh, moves away from the effort of establishing uh, slave labor-driven plantation and turns instead to slave labor-driven uh, uh, 
uh, forest industries, essentially. I think that is an excellent segue to move into my question that I had about the sources and the problems of the archive. Um, and as you just mentioned, that so much of your book is a, is organized, in fact, around these silences that permeate the archives of the enslaved. And so you, you've previously mentioned the work of Marisa Fuentes, but also you cite Sitia Hartman and others whose work has critically examined these silences and the challenges they present to those of us who are working in the trenches of slavery studies. And you had a really excellent quote on page 12 that I wanted to share with our listeners. You wrote, quote, because marinage comprised a form of slave resistance through which runaways hid from detection, and because the enslaved people dispatched into land company forced labor camps also performed their labors off the grid, maroons and enslaved laborers who exper- whose experiences this book attempts to reconstruct are read through crucial glimpses that reflect the ways by which the dismal enslaved people negotiated their lives. End quote. And because so few extant resources were written by enslaved laborers and absconded maroons in the remote interiors of the Great Dismal Swamp, I was hoping that you could just say a bit more about the process of how you did read against the archival grain, specifically with these business records and ledgers and the correspondences of white company agents in search of clues pertaining to their lives, labors, and living conditions. Sure, sure. Um, So I should first say... (laughs) That these records are some of the driest <laughs> in human history. Unless, of course, you are an historian of capitalism and you are uh, very much taken by uh, folders and folders of uh, inventories and account registers and calculations and... <laughs> Uh, the, all the attendant paperwork that goes along with essentially running a business, right? Uh, so, so the first thing that I had to remind myself at every turn is that at least for this project, I was really more interested in the human history of the swamp in, in, in what correspondences between people who did write about the swamp and whose letters have not necessarily been cited regularly what I might find in in those correspondences. Um, That perspective had its roots in my dissertation. Uh, My dissertation, of course, had its roots in my thesis, in which uh, the thesis, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I was really attempting to deal with runaway slave advertisements in a way that helped me to understand slave resistance of my own accord and in concert with uh, the many scholars who had previously written about Uh, slave runaway advertisements. Uh, But slave runaway advertisements, as I mentioned, at this stage, I think, in slavery studies, uh, do not offer us a compelling and new take that uh, we might necessarily advance the field with. And so I was looking for a way that I might marry what I learned about slave resistance in studying slave runaway advertisements to the Great Dismal Swamp in such a way that I might build out uh, uh, a, a, a fuller contextualization of the swamp, one that didn't necessarily treat the champions of Washington's era as Charles Royster had done, but also one that didn't necessarily just give in to the silences in ways that, to some degree, I thought previous historians had done too. I almost happened upon, by surprise, the stunning amount of correspondences that agents 
and company officials passed between one another. And I was doing this in part, I, I have to be honest, in, a, in the historian's early haphazard method of visiting archives where you know materials are and starting folder by folder, looking for sources that might be useful to the story that I was seeking to frame, I think is a way to put it. And I had some entry points. Dan Sayers and others, for example, had done excellent work to show how John Augustine Washington and how John Mayo and others had complained about runaway adver- uh, runaways uh, from Dismaltown in the 1760s. Uh, and they do so that I write about Tom uh, in one particular aspect as I'm entering into that part of the uh, Marinage and the Dismal Swamp conversation. But I just kept finding correspondence letters. And it got to a point where I said, okay, I think that if I frame this book in such a way that features these letters without celebrating them, then I might be able to mine these letters almost in the ways that literary scholars closely read uh, uh, narratives and books and such to find the threads that I can then in turn uh, contextualize in such a way that we can build out the experience of marinage and we can answer some of the questions of, well, how do we write this history if we don't have the sources that tell us exactly what we want to know? That to me is the process of reading archival silences in this particular project. It's, It's really a practical matter of spending time in the archives, taking images. I, I, I literally took my digital camera into the, the archives that I mentioned at the beginning of the book. And I just snapped picture after picture after picture after picture when I was in a folder that I believed might yield something useful. And then in examining the, the images of these pictures at a later date, it's then I begin to piece together the ways in which the conversations between company agents and company officials actually shed light on what's happening in the swamp. And they do so in such a way that, as I mentioned earlier, for example, company agents complained about truancy at slave labor camps. But even that wasn't enough in the dissertation stage or in the stage of writing this book. And it's at that point that I turned to uh, what the several abolitionists that I mentioned in this book we're also doing to turn the nation's attention to the Great Dismal Swamp. And in this number, uh, I include Frederick Douglass, who ran uh, several articles titled Slaves in the Dismal Swamp. But I also dealt with a much more obscure abolitionist who I'd seen cited in other scholarship, but whose story didn't necessarily make sense to me until I started to Uh, seek more information about him. His name, of course, Edmund Jackson. I found that Edmund Jackson was the much less uh, popular, prominent brother of an abolitionist out of Boston, the older brother named Francis Jackson, the much wealthier brother as well. But Edmund Jackson very much wrote in the vein of late antebellum abolitionists who complained about slavery's ills and who complained about discrimination in the North. Uh, I found that he was publishing essays, several, 
in the Liberty Bell, which appeared in Boston uh, in the 40s, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 1830s, 40s, and 50s. But one essay that Jackson wrote stood out in ways that seemed to me to be the linchpin piece of evidence that I could bring to bear in this study to build at least one more layer of plausibility to a story of marinage that doesn't have direct sources of its own. The title of Jackson's essay was The Virginia Maroons. It was published in 1851 or 52, and it circulated about Boston. And as I write in City of Refuge, it described the Great Dismal Swamp not as a site where slaves were in the swamp, as Frederick Douglass and others had done previously, but as a city of refuge, this is also where I take that part of the book's title from, in the midst of slavery, in which a number of swamp agents engage in a direct exchange with others who hide in the swamp in ways that bring to bear the context of marinage in places like Jamaica, Santo Domingo, and Cuba. Full stop. When I first read this essay, I'm like, A, wow. And B, why is a, a, a man in Boston writing about the Great Dismal Swamp in such a way that he's trying to connect it to marinage in the global south? And the answer for me was complicated, as, of course, uh, ultimately, I think the story of the Dismal's uh, slave laborers and, and maroons is. He's writing about the dismal in a marinage metaphor that essentially not only uh, points to the reality that can be documented and that had been observed, slaves in the dismal swamp, but also seeks to take account for the rumors of enslaved people who fled those camps or enslaved people who fled other parts of Virginia and North Carolina where slavery existed to take refuge in the swamp. It was his way. And indeed, my way in City of Refuge of pointing to the reality of what otherwise would remain metaphor. And that is that marinage has broader applications, the, the idea, the scholarship of marinage, and the practical reality of marinage, the truth, I should say, of marinage, had much broader application than one might have found, uh, or than social scientists even in the 20th century had studied and documented in places like Jamaica, Suriname, and beyond. And so to some degree, what's left open, as you mentioned earlier, is the fact that without direct archival evidence of Maroons in the Dismal, the question does remain, how do we tell the contours of Marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp? But we can speak to the ways in which Marinage operated in the swamp, the ways in which Maroon survived in the swamp, by taking a look at the swamp's internal economy of exchange from slave labor camps to Maroon camps, and by thinking about internal economies of exchange more broadly as they operated in an Atlantic world of Marinage. I think that throughout City of Refuge, you do an excellent job of describing these informal economies that triangulated enslaved laborers absconded slaves engaged in petite marinage and the white company agents who oversaw the various extractive enterprises in the Great Dismal Swamp. And I think what that discovery for me, it's, it's perhaps an obscure reference point, but 
I was reminded of the work of Martha Hodes in White Women, Black Men when she, you know, she's writing on the heels of scholars thinking about the ways in which interracial sex were um, in the Reconstruction era South used to uh, mobilize grotesque violence against the bodies of African-American men for the supposed rape of white women. And so she uses this myth as a way to trace back the longer legacies and the sexual ideologies regarding sex across the color line in the antebellum period. And the discoveries that she comes across are just so remarkable to me that in many cases in the legal records that she uses, that there was a tacit acceptance of sex across the color line. But when enslaved men made the transition from slave to free, it then became a problem. And so I know it's a very obscure reference, but the point that I'm trying to make more largely are the ways in which we can dismantle these larger generalizations about what life was like for enslaved people in the South prior to the Civil War by looking very closely, and I think you said it well just a moment ago, by reading these documents very closely, both along and against the archival grain, to tease out these peculiar circumstances that are sometimes local in their nature, but also that say a bit more and do an excellent job of complicating these histories that for so long we've taken at face value, if that makes sense. And so I was particularly struck by, in the subsequent chapters of the book, when you discuss the tacit acceptance of white company agents to these otherwise clandestine exchanges between Maroons and enslaved laborers in the Great Dismal. And so I'm curious if you could speak back to this, why would white company agents operating on behalf of the Dismal Swamp Company, the Dismal Swamp Canal Company, and others permit these exchanges? The short answer is that without those exchanges, the effort to establish slave labor camps in the Dismal Swamp fails miserably. And that's the key lesson of Black resistance, at least in this context, right? That enslaved people compelled to labor in perhaps the most extreme of environments along the East Coast, save the lower Georgia swamp and the lower Florida swamps. Um, It's really almost the power of negotiation between enslaved people and the agents. That's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that the agents themselves had great incentive to make a success of these particular uh, slave labor camps that they were called to look over. And I use the example of Samuel Proctor in the book to demonstrate this key point. I find evidence of Samuel Proctor operating in the service of Richard Blow, who was a commission merchant and uh, plantation uh, 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 factor in the region in the first decade of the 19th century. Proctor is working to coordinate Blow's efforts to engage in the Dismal Swamp Canal Company, separate from the Dismal Swamp Land Company, And in the context of the canal company, slave labor camps are called to the project of 
cutting by hand with very small tools uh, a waterway from the northern end of the swamp to the southern end of the swamp on its eastern side. Today, this waterway still exists, but it's been vastly expanded in the World War II era such that um, vessels with significant draft can pass from uh, the Lower Hampton Roads region to the Albemarle Sound, essentially, along the Dismal Swamp Canal Waterway. But in the early 19th century, this project would take nearly two decades to fully complete, and the labors of several hundred enslaved people compelled to do the work that I mentioned of cutting into the ground a passageway that would then be flooded uh, in order to allow for the passage of small uh, bottom vessels. This labor required digging by hand with hoes and other small tools, a waterway that was several feet across and several feet deep, cutting into the land, cutting roots and digging them out of the way, and essentially doing this under the heat and humidity of an oppressive southern sun. Without permitting certain uh, passage of or exchanges of material, for example, an enslaved person might resist. And in this particular context of slavery, though enslaved camp laborers were punished in all the same traditional ways that we know, uh, through direct violence against the body to uh, woefully inadequate rations, the instance of these sorts of coercion, I find, at least in the records, and again, you have to read these records carefully, but I find, at least in these records, to be very, very minimal. The way in which company agents generally sought to compel enslaved people to undertake the works, the labors that I've described, uh, was by conceding in some way to the enslaved people's demands and their actions. And so, to some degree, Samuel Proctor spends 15 or more years overseeing these contexts. He transfers from Blow Service to the service of the Dismal Swamp Land Company in the 1810s. But I also found his will. And I found, in, at least in analyzing what he was able to bequeath to his heirs, and comparing that to the way in which he described himself and the way in which he was described by his social betters 20 years earlier, someone who essentially scratched an existence out of the dismal swamp, out of his role, his position as overseeing enslaved people in the swamp, such that he has a a material uh, beneficence to bequeath upon his heirs. To me, that informs a very important perspective that I think is all too understated in in slavery studies, and that is that once we drill down beneath the grand layer of enslaver or the grand layer of slave plantation owner, et cetera, et cetera, and we, we look a bit more closely at the people whose charge it was to engage in the day to day processes of making something of enslaved laborers' efforts coerced through violent coercion or otherwise, we find that some, including Samuel Proctor, actually carve a decent life 
out of these activities. There's an analog, of course, in the stories of that are now being retold in much greater detail. For example, slave traders. Not those, although the uh, Armfeld uh, uh, family, for example, of Virginia can in some ways be cast this way, but those who actually drove the coffles to the South and West found in this very illicit and terrible work their own sorts of potential uh, for subsistence, if not fortune. And in these contexts, there is much to be told or, or much to learn, I, 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 would, I would actually say, about what was allowed, what was permitted in ways that might help us to balance the, our understanding of this history, I think, a bit more. Um, you know, I think one of the most insightful elements of your book, you know, reverting back to the conversations we've had previously about archival sources, um, about the thematic scope of your work, there are just so many really wonderful aspects of your book that I think, and in and, and a way that is conveyed in a very condensed and readable way. Uh, you know, there are so, <laughs> so many questions I could ask you about the process of converting a full length dissertation into a roughly 100 page book, including an introduction and prologue, which in of itself is award worthy. <laughs> I should, uh, I should certainly pass the credit to my copy editor and to uh, the readers at the university of Georgia press who uh, convinced me after some um, negotiation to see the value in a shorter book. I'll put it that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That wasn't sure. my own um, idea, at least initially. Sure. But I think chapter four was probably my favorite of the book. And you do an excellent job of contextualizing the ambidextrous labors that were performed by enslaved. For me, the the um, the notion of or the overall mission of your book came to light, in my opinion, in chapter four, where you center the labors of enslaved men in the Great Dismal Swamps, timber camps, and canal digging projects. And specifically, I enjoyed the ways in which you chart these developments into these three phases of the uh, the land clearing schemes in the canal, in the dismal swamp, rather, uh, throughout the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And specifically, I think this is this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a few moments ago. The ways in which you are able to um, add nuance or spice <laughs> to these otherwise kind of dry archival records, and by reading through these correspondence and memos to reconstruct the working worlds of these men but also the ways in which the labor itself was procured over time from local slaveholders who were willing and desired to hire out their enslaved men for uh, a set income per, on an annual basis, granted that they would be provided with you know, um, clothing, um, blankets, shoes, the like, although, as we know, that's not always promised. Um, but for for me, I think that was an important because it, it demonstrates this new interest, I think a revived interest in the practice of hiring out beyond the urban South um, and thinking about the ways in which uh, contracted labor or slaves for hire were not only utilized in the domestic or the merchant economies of the Mid-Atlantic or New England prior to the American Revolution, but also in the plantation South in the 
you know, post-1807 moment that scholars have increasingly turned their attention to. But for me, I, I, I felt as if, and I just, I could not help but to wonder as a person who's interested in the labors and the everyday experiences of African-American women, I wanted to know whether in the course of your research on slavery, petite marinage and the extractive economy of the Great Dismal Swamp, whether or not you came across enslaved women in their labors in the archival record. So for example, you discuss hiring out to perform a myriad of labors, including shingle getting and canal digging, which contributed to rising company profits. But as I read your book, I just was wondering whether enslaved women were also routinely hired out by company officials to execute a range of highly demanding tasks that would have ranged from perhaps cooking and cleaning to washing, mending, stitching clothes, and also perhaps the exploitation of their reproductive labor to generate future generations of shingle getters and canal diggers. That is a very, very important question. Um, the answer to which is quite disappointing to me and probably to just about everyone who will read this book, if there's one way that the book will let us down. Uh, and that is to say, with those hiring out records that I did find, I did not find much mention of women. And, and in the business records, too, I found little mention, so little, in fact, that it was confounding, to be perfectly honest with you. Because, of course, I had read Marisa Fuentes' excellent work on Colonial Barbados, for example, and I'd been using it as a model uh, for the way that I frame not only the story that I tell, but for the way that I might also treat the story of women in the Great Dismal Swamp and in the way that I frame it. Problem is, I found next to no evidence, which in and of itself is a very important question that I did not choose to pursue, but that I do think has great merit as a project in its own right. I do know that uh, other scholars, too, have encountered similar, similar difficulties, at least in this history of the Great Dismal Swamp. I can't remember the title of the dissertation off the top of my head, but a colleague of mine several years out of, uh, ago, out of Howard University, attempted to undertake the question of, uh, that you're essentially posing. How might we write the history of maroon women in the United States, and how might we do so? Basically, in uh, generally the same framing that I'm looking into that, that, that helps us to consider marinage as a phenomenon in the Atlantic world in ways that informs our work in North America. She didn't come up with much evidence of women in the story of the dismal either. I addressed the question with my advisor at Ohio State at the dissertation stage, and she suggested that I consider framing the dismal as a gendered space, but one in which the gendered space is defined by an overabundance of males in the space. And I thought that to be quite an interesting way to think about it, but I, I ultimately decided not to undertake uh, that framing because I didn't, I didn't know particularly what it would add to the more direct question of interest here, which you framed so eloquently. Uh, and, and that is, how might we engage in the history of women in this particular swamp, in this particular story? So to answer your question, I think more directly, and this might be to the benefit of your, of your readers who want, <laughs> I would imagine, a direct answer, I did not find any evidence of 
women being hired out. But that may also be a function of the way in which I was reading those records too, uh, ultimately seeking uh, the examples that I bring to bear in this particular book. So I can't say with 100% certainty that those records do not exist, but I, I'm pretty confident in saying uh, that they don't exist. One of you know one of the individuals we spoke about earlier was Edmund Booth, and one of the final questions I wanted to ask you today um, was about Booth and his experiences that you describe in great detail in Chapter Six. So Booth uh, was an African American man who slipped in and out of slavery throughout the tumultuous decade of the 1850s, and whose labors you recovered from surviving Gates County, North Carolina, registers of free and enslaved blacks and Native Americans, which in of itself is a fascinating source. I can only imagine. And I should mention—I don't mean to interrupt, but I should mention there is much more to be done with that register. <laughs> oh, sure. I can imagine. And and, 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 the, and the ways in which race so blindly operates in the pre, in pre-Civil War America and the ways in which, in, in a lot of frustrating ways, you know, census records don't differentiate the gender of individuals prior to 1820. Um, their free or slave status is very, very contested between 1790 when we have the first federal censuses taken and 1820 when genders are revealed. And as a person who's interested in that period and, and even beforehand, um, it can become very difficult. So when you find these nuggets, uh, these gems, I guess more b- better put, um, th- these registers are so helpful. And at least in my experiences, the lo- local censuses have also provided invaluable insights into the enslaved women that I study. But I'm curious if you remember when you first came across Booth's story in the archive, that, that, that experience itself. And would you mind sharing why you chose to include his story in the last chapter of City of Refuge? I just think it was so beautifully done. And it summarizes so many of the points that you've raised throughout the book and kind of condenses them into one vignette about one man whose life was caught quite literally between the worlds of slavery and I would say unfreedom rather than freedom. Sure, sure. I think this is a good segue too to um, another broader question that we've been talking about, and that's the trajectory that this book takes as it emanated out of the dissertation and became a book. The main difference that I find, at least in my own experience um, as a dissertator and now as someone who has published a book, is that in the dissertation, you're really attempting to uh, develop and frame cogent arguments that synthesize the vast amount of secondary research that you do and use primary sources to demonstrate where you bring something original or something creative to longstanding extant scholarly conversations. And this is particularly true of slavery studies, and it's also true of the historiography of the American Revolution and the early republic, historiographies that are long and deep and have been around for more than a century now. It may be less so true with newer histories where scholars are on the cutting edge, so to speak, of bringing new primary sources to bear for the first time. Uh, with regard to retelling the story of a recent historical uh, event. So I want to make that sort of setting clear. But with regard to what I was attempting to do 
with Edmund Booth's story and how it features in City of Refuge, it's actually pretty cool a story, I think. So the register itself is is widely known among uh, Dismal Swamp slavery scholars, right? Uh, and it's widely known because it's the best of the registers uh, in the genre that exist. And, and by the best, I mean it's probably the most complete <laughs> and the main one that we can still reference today. There are several others that are in various stages of incompleteness, but uh, they, they're not as rich as the Gates County Register. The Gates County Register's richness, in part, is proven by volume. It's more than 300 pages of enslaved people who are sent to the same sector of the swamp, Gates County, North Carolina, over the course of uh, roughly 15 years. And so uh, that was the first thing that I considered when thinking about ways that I might use the register. I should also note that the original register uh, is located in the North Carolina State Archives. but there's also a transcribed version of the register, which is in the Nansaman County uh, Library's historical collection in Virginia. Um, my first reading of the register was to sit with it in a way that I could sort of dwell upon it and just flip through the early pages of it in an attempt to read the physical descriptions that were entered of each enslaved person that the Gates County Registrar encountered in any given year from 1847 to 1861. And in doing so, I noticed that at the beginning of every subsequent year after 1847, the same enslaved people are showing up in this same register. So there's some measure of regularity in the way in which this system operated right, that uh, the Booth family of Nansenman County, for example, would send into the swamp X number of enslaved people, and some of these X number of enslaved people would appear in the register at the beginning of the laboring season in subsequent years after 1847. It struck me that the first person entered in the register was Edmund Booth, and that Edmund Booth shows up on subsequent pages, as I described in City of Refuge, at the beginning of each laboring season. So that's the first thing that strikes me, right? That Edmund Booth and others show up on an annual basis. That's sort of obvious. I then took a closer look at the way in which Edmund Booth and the others were described, and I found a very distinctive pattern in Edmund Booth's description, which demonstrate change over time in the same time period. Edmund Booth, as you mentioned, was first registered as an enslaved person in March 1847, But by February 1852, by the way, the the register did not uh, begin in the same month of every year subsequent after 1847. Uh, But by February 1852, Edmund Booth is registered as a free person who's still laboring in the same swamp site for the Oropeak Canal Company. Five years later, in 1857, he's entered into the register as an enslaved person yet again. That baffled me when I first saw it. I was still a graduate student. And it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever that A, Edmund Booth is 
going into the swamp as an enslaved person, that B, when he's a free person, he's still going into the same swamp and laboring, one would imagine, in the same slave labor camps with enslaved people, and that C, in a subsequent year, he returns to the swamp enslaved again. Part of the explanation that I develop is actually rooted in a deeper secondary source dive. I started looking for people who had written about re-enslavement, um, not expecting to really find anything, but then finding Ted Maris Wolf's great book on the subject, and particularly on Virginia's re-enslavement law of 1856-7. So that gave me a plausible context as to how Edmund Booth could have been enslaved, free, and then enslaved again. But the other side of that story, too, was that to, to, to tell this story only as a local story would be insufficient given the larger framing of the book. And so I then had to consider as well uh, the broader political context of the 1850s, um, which essentially offers for readers of City of Refuge, and for me as the person writing City of Refuge, the broader reasoning around why the um, register would have existed in the first place when prior to the 1830s, these registers were non-existent. Or the way in which, by the 1850s, the states of Virginia and North Carolina at the county level are attempting to impose more structure on what are essentially private companies employing enslaved people or dispatching into the swamp enslaved people when prior to the 1830s, this had not been the case. Part of this, of course, uh, is rooted in a watershed moment that was Nat Turner's Rebellion um, and the subsequent watershed moment, which were the 1831-32 Virginia legislative debates around gradual emancipation and ultimately around strengthening slavery in Virginia. Uh, But part of this, too, and, and again, because this was the main thrust of City of Refuge, was to try to tell Edmund Booth's story as best I could with the very, very brief entries I had without or or, or alongside the balance or or bringing to that story the balance necessary to contextualize Edmund Booth's story without losing Edmund Booth himself. And so as I write on page 94, uh, this is really guided by two questions. What do Booth's changing circumstances reveal about the murky legal and social context for slavery and freedom in the Great Dismal Swamp and beyond the Lower Chesapeake? Uh, And what can and cannot be known about his life and those of other blacks in Southside Virginia and Eastern North Carolina? Ultimately, as as you read, I concluded, in much the same as others, uh, other scholars uh, working in similar veins conclude, that we have open questions. We know what he looked like. We know the sort of labors he undertook. We know when he was in the swamp. We know much less about his life outside of the swamp. And in part, that's, that, that, that's the problem that we as scholars engage when we, when we try to recover the lives, the full lives of enslaved people in the pre-Civil War South, right? And, and, and there are very practical questions we can, we can engage to, to, to make this point. 
Did Booth, for example, have family of his own among Nansaman County's enslaved people? Did he marry? Uh, and could this be the reason why he returned annually to a site where he could potentially have been carving a life for his family out of? Uh, where did he live when he was not in camp with the swan? We can assume with the Booth family, but we don't know for sure. And that's part of the greater lesson that we have to, to accept, or at least that I pose we accept <laughs> in City of Refuge. I've, Booth's experiences called to memory a passage that was written by the eminent historian Eric Foner in 1994 that I, I often go back and think about time and time again uh, when trying to make sense of the messiness of emancipation and antebellum America. So Foner writes, quote, freedom has never been a fixed category or a predetermined concept, but instead, he, he goes on to write, is, quote, has, is, and will continue to be a contested terrain of struggle. And so I may perhaps be painting with broad strokes by saying this, but in my conversations with students and friends and family, as Americans, I think we often envision freedom in its immediate sense as embodying the experiences of nearly 4 million enslaved folks who were emancipated by the the Emancipation Proclamation and later the 13th Amendment in 1866. But as we know from the work of scholars on free Black communities and gradual emancipation in the North and New England, and also the groundbreaking work of Reconstruction-era scholars, that freedom from physical bondage did not necessarily equate to unrestricted social, economic, legal, political, or even sexual sovereignty for African Americans in late 18th and early and late 19th century America. And so with this in mind, I'm curious how you think that Booth's life and his tenuous status as free, in a lot of ways, to me at least, it embodies the paradox of freedom for all African Americans throughout our nation's history and also in the present day. I would agree. Uh, I would agree almost in wholesale. Um, and I would say that if we were to consider a method by which City of Refuge recovers what we can know about Edmund Booth's life, and we place it alongside what we can and do know about much more famous uh, contemporaries of Booth's, for example, Frederick Douglass, there's, there, there's a real instructive thread to be teased out of such a comparison. We know as much as we know about Frederick Douglass, that is to say, because of how much of a prolific writer he was and how prominent his life was uh, in the context of American slavery and ultimately postbellum American freedom. But Edmund Booth's story is very much the story of a grassroots slave who found a moment of freedom but did not necessarily find the same moment of prominence so characteristic of Douglas's trajectory. We can assume that Booth likely was not literate, given what we know about American slavery, and as a result, we can relatively easy, easily explain, uh, one might assume, why he did not write much of anything if he did write anything. But you might notice also that I'm using qualifying language, terms like if, that belie my slight sense of skepticism in accepting 
what I'm actually proposing in City of Refuge, at least at this point, we should accept. And, and I'm doing that intentionally because it's that slight sense of skepticism that we, we, we must always accept what we believe we know that in part drove my initial interest in taking up such a subject. As an early graduate student, it was daunting, I have to admit, to decide to write about a story that most people would initially say, almost in, in shorthand, there's not enough sources to do that. How are you going to write a dissertation out of that? Except for with a keen sense of skepticism and probably a bit of delusion, <laughs> it is possible. And that, that's, that keen sense of skepticism, I'm using keen for, for a key reason here, is that I assume, even in approaching this story in this way, that I'm not going to be able to tell every single detail. And I've made my peace with that. And I think to some degree, scholars working in this vein do similar things or come to similar resolutions within themselves. This is not, that is to say, a history of, of James Monroe's presidency, which overarches much of this book, which in a book that I read recently by uh, uh, Robert Forbes is a fascinating read when you have someone who is so, so voluminous and so prominent a writer as an American president there is much to be told but even in that book there are key places of speculation where the documents don't exist but a story told in that way at least until very recently has received far more acclaim than a story told in the way that I present Edmund Booth's story. That to me is not an indictment per se of the historian's consensus of rules, but it points to a way in which we might amend the historian's consensus of rules such that we can know much more fully America's history. The history of black resistance in the United States that we might reconcile these histories, that we might reconcile the very palpable concerns that Black communities retain today, that we don't know enough about Black history, the past, because of slavery. In some ways, I'm hoping ultimately that City of Refuge contributes in keen ways to that sense of knowing, to that sense of reconciliation, um, just as much as I'm very interested in the way that I actually frame it that it contributes to new historiographies of slavery and capitalism and to long-standing historiographies of the history of abolition. It's a real challenge, I think, that almost haphazardly <laughs> I stumbled into. But when I proposed the book out of the dissertation, I began to believe would come to pass. Because I have to be honest with you, I, I I, I didn't see myself as a superstar graduate student. I did not necessarily know what path I would take to bring the book to bear, but I did know that there was a book to be written. And I was and still am fully committed to seeing that book through, whereas now the book is in print. Um, today reflect, uh, presents an opportunity to uh, spread word of the book and to perhaps even inspire others to begin their own 
projects in the Great Dismal Swamp. Or to at least find the places where I'm wrong, because I could be <laughs> Well, you know, I think we, we can all say that there is so much to be learned from City of Refuge. And um, to breathe a sigh of relief now, knowing that it has hit the shelves. And the last question I wanted to ask you was actually, what are you working on now? What, what, what do you foresee the future of your own intellectual and scholarly odyssey looking like in the years to come? <laughs> I love that question. And I've always loved that question. Uh, note the uh, <laughs> the slight bit of cynicism in that <laughs> response. Uh, no, uh, seriously, I've uh, finishedly uh, recently finished um, an historiographical essay about the last fifteen years of scholarship of Marinage, uh, which is slated to appear once it goes through copy editing in History Compass. Um, so one way to answer your question is that I've begun to, I've taken a step back from the high, highly localized story that's, that Marinage and the Great Dismal Swamp presents to us to try to think about it broadly as I once had as a graduate student. I'm also uh, digging a bit more into the archive to try to learn as much as I can about Dismal Town and Dismal Plantation uh, because that's one segment of the Great Dismal Swamp, as I write about in the early pages of City of Refuge, uh, where I feel that there may be more to learn about the individual people who were at Dismal Town and Dismal Plantation. I'm not entirely sure that I'll be successful <laughs> in my grandest aims with that particular project, but I have uh, submitted it to uh, a journal, and it's gone through favorably a first round of review. Uh, so I'll probably drag that project out as long as I can before <laughs> before I have to resubmit it. Um, but in terms of a second book project, I'm not entirely sure what direction I, I, I want to go yet. And I think that part of the reasoning behind that is a bit of a halting sense that I'm engaging now that City of Refuge is done. I, I really want to take a moment to breathe and to engage in the reception that City of Refuge receives. But I'm also thinking about what my interests are next. I don't know if it's a revolutionary era framing of the next project as might emerge from Dismal Town and Dismal Plantation or whether or not it's an early Republican period framing as might emerge from a few other directions that I might go from City of Refuge. Um, but I can say this in closing. One of the benefits, I think, of having my dissertation chopped nearly in half, <laughs> <laughs> if not more so, <laughs> um, is that there's, there, there are things that I can probably revisit in it and threads that I can probably pursue from there. And if that's a benefit of the general downward pressure that we're experiencing in publishing books these days, then I think it's a good thing. Well, I wanted to take a moment to thank you so much for joining me today to talk about City of Refuge. Uh, as a reminder, City of Refuge is now out uh, and is available for purchase through the University of Georgia Press's website. 
Thank you again, Dr. Nevius, for joining me today. Jared, I really appreciate uh, having this time with you today and your, your kind, kind compliments and review of City of Refuge. Thank you.